Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We approach the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has spoken of two treasures, one on earth and one in heaven. He's spoken about two roads, one broad and the other narrow. He's spoken of two animals, one a pretender and the other a ravenous wolf. And now he speaks of two disciples, each separated from the other on judgment day. In the last few verses of this chapter, Jesus will speak of two builders, two houses, two foundations. In each case, there are two categories or two groups. One that hears the word of Jesus and obeys, and the other that hears the word of Jesus and fails to obey. Now Jesus will speak of two doers, the one who does the will of his father in heaven and the one who doesn't. One is a true believer and the other is a make believer. Warren Wiersbe writes, the two ways illustrate the start of the new life of faith. The two trees illustrate the growth and results of the life of faith here and now. And the two houses illustrate the end of the life of faith. When God shall call everything to judgment, unquote. Wiersbe goes on to say, quote, the final test, the final test is not what we think of ourselves or what others may think. The final test is... What will God say? Unquote. What I think is really irrelevant. And strangely enough, what you think almost certainly will turn out to be irrelevant if it doesn't comply with what God has said. In the end, only God's opinion matters. In the end, God's statement is the only objective standard of truth. And so when a person says to you, that's your reading of the Bible, that's your interpretation of the Bible, that's your application of the Bible, I think what we have to do is we have to ask and answer something way more profound. And that is, what does Jesus say about himself and about you? Jesus calls the listener to a decision. Turn from false righteousness. Turn from false religion. Turn from false prophets to true righteousness, to a right relationship to God and to each other. Walk as citizens in the true kingdom of God. What would keep someone from that narrow gate? One possible answer that Jesus has given is that false prophets can bring a false message that causes a person to remain on the broad path. Another possible answer that he gives in this particular passage isn't just the false teacher saying something that's false. Now he turns to something far more sinister and malignant and that's self-deception, self-delusion. It's one thing for one person to lie to you, and it's another thing for you to lie to yourself. False prophets aren't the only deceivers. Jesus warns about the lies that we 
may tell ourselves that could conceivably place us into the category of this make-believer. The make-believer is either self-deceived or self-deluded. And so the Bible seems to indicate there are believers and there are unbelievers. And there are make-believers. The make-believer falls into two broad gaps broad categories. Those who make a verbal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, who profess that they're saved, who speak words like a saved person, but who actually live their life like an unsaved person. The second type of make-believer makes a profession of faith intellectually. They're described in verses 21 through 23, which we just read. They say the right things, but then they refuse to do the right things. The second is described in verses 24 through 27. They hear the right things, but they refuse to do the right things. Sometimes the make-believer is rather obvious. And sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's blatant. Sometimes it's subtle. And so Jesus calls our attention in verses 21. He says, not Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. If you read this as something other than a warning, then guess what? You're probably on the wrong track. It is a warning. Jesus gives a warning against mere profession, absent possession. Why does Jesus refer to himself as the Lord? And by the way, this is the first time he refers to himself as the Lord. And I want you to think about how outrageous this comment is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he has placed himself in the sermon. And he's made an outrageous statement. He is leaving the listener with the idea that the presence or the absence of entrance into heaven somehow depends upon him. In the next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 2, we're going to see a leper come and worship him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus doesn't dispute what the leper says, and he also doesn't dispute the fact that he receives worship. Jesus has told us, beware of false prophets. And then he gives us this brief profile in verses 15 through 20 of what a false prophet looks like. Remember, they have a false Lord. They have a false Jesus. They have a false salvation. And because they have a false Jesus and a false gospel, it invariably must lead to a false salvation. And so for the person who's listening to Jesus, they should be saying to themselves, you mean it's not enough to simply avoid the false Jesus? It's not good enough to avoid the false gospel? I have to believe the true gospel? Yes. Okay, I believe it. No, not simply with your lips, but with your heart. It isn't just simply acknowledging the facts surrounding the truth that is going to unfold about the ministry of Jesus. The make-believer may acknowledge correct doctrine and still have a false sense of assurance. Jesus begins, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, the Greek word is kyrios, kyrios. It can be translated master, master shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Simply acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord apparently doesn't guarantee you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus includes, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Does this mean that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus plus works? Well, Paul makes it abundantly clear that can't be. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, you are saved by grace 
and that not of yourselves. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any person should boast. But apparently, there's a kind of a faith, there's a kind of a faith where you receive Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and you are truly changed, you are truly regenerated, you're born again from the inside out. The make-believer can apparently believe the correct facts about the gospel, but never experience the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, a desire to turn from sin. The make-believer never experiences true repentance from sin, evidenced by a changed life and a willingness to be obedient to the word of God. I can't bring assurance to a person. So many people come up to me and say, can you make sure that I'm saved? And my answer is no, no, I can't. The only person who can make sure is you by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says God's word and God's Spirit can provide that assurance. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In the book of Romans, Paul says, The person who's been changed by the Holy Spirit can have assurance. In chapter 6 of John's Gospel, we read about Jesus feeding a great multitude with a few loaves and fish. And, and the people, when they receive this amazing miracle, they want to make Jesus the king. They just say, look what Jesus can do. If he can just take a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people, this is the kind of person we want in charge of the government. But Jesus refuses. Jesus says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and that you were filled. He told them, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what, what shall we do that we can work the works of God? In chapter 6 of, of Chapter 6 of John, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus doesn't say, Go to my church, read my book, follow me on Twitter. He doesn't say any of those things. He basically says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The people knew that Jesus was speaking about himself. In verse 30, it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Jesus explains that he's the bread that's come down from heaven. And then in verse 39, Jesus says, This is the will. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus makes having a relationship with him, fellowship with him, belief on him, the basis of eternal life and eternal salvation. Jesus makes the case for genuine obedience to God's word based on a right relationship and fellowship with him. You do not obey God's word in order to have a relationship with God and Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus and God and therefore you obey God's word. And if you don't get that subtle difference, then the chances are you're not going to understand anything that I'm about to say. You mean not in order to be saved? Correct. But rather as evidence that you are saved. The most convincing evidence isn't simply a change in what we say. 
Jesus says the most convincing evidence is a change in what we do. W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, quote, nothing, nothing is sadder or more disastrous than the orthodoxy of lip without the orthodoxy of life. It is not only what we say, but also what we are and do that constitutes true discipleship for every truth is to be transmitted into living, unquote. And he's exactly right. For you to embrace a truth that doesn't actually change who you are and what you do falls short of what constitutes real truth. The make-believer believes in heaven and wants to go there. I want you to pause for just a moment. Is it possible that you know people? Is it possible that you've even been that person where, where you said to yourself, I believe in Jesus and I believe that he died on the cross and I believe that he rose from the dead and I know that I want to go to heaven and I know that I want to go to hell and so you decide that you're going to go to church or, or that you're going to have a Bible or that you're going to go to a Bible study because you just can't risk going to hell. I got to be honest with you. It wasn't the fear of hell that convinced me to be a Christian. It was the possibility. It was the possibility that God could love somebody like me, change somebody like me, Come into my heart and come into my life. You see, the make-believer believes in heaven and wants to go there, but I need to ask you a different question, and that is, will the simple desire to go to heaven get you there? For those of you who are shaking your head, no, you have the right answer. The simple desire to go to heaven is not what will get you there. Apparently, it requires a real relationship and fellowship and intimacy with Christ. The make-believer makes a false profession. The make-believer fails to examine himself or herself. The make-believer appeals to good works as a source of salvation. The make-believer will continue in sin and refuse to repent. That's the profile of the make-believer. John MacArthur writes, the person who professes to be a Christian, but who habitually and unrepentantly continues in known sin, makes out God to be a liar because his word expressly denies that such a person belongs to him in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. What MacArthur is saying and what I believe that the scriptures are saying is this, for the person who says, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I believe that he loves me and I believe that he died and I believe that he rose, but I don't believe that he has the power to change me from the inside out. is acknowledging less than what Jesus is saying about himself and what the Bible is saying that Jesus can do. The person who does God's will is the person who truly believes, who truly obeys and loves God's son. And so at the end of of, of verse 21, when he says, Lord, Lord, the Lord Jesus is the first to admit that it's possible to lay Claim to Jesus. Read it for yourself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that there are those who can lay claim to Jesus. They call him master, but they can be set aside by the Lord unless their teaching and their work reflect God's will. We use the word profession, by the way, in a number of different ways. Sometimes It means our vocation or our career. And so in the second part, when I say the make believers false profession, I'm not making it in the the sense of vocation or career. Here I'm using the word meaning to pretend, to make a claim, 
to purport, to make a claim under false pretenses. So here, when Jesus says, the person who's calling me Lord, Lord, they're protesting because they're under the impression that that's exactly who Jesus is. Profession is the idea of saying something with no intention of doing something. And so for the person who says, Master, Master, Lord, Lord. But there's actually no friendship and fellowship or relationship is making a false claim. Profession is a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. This is the person who embraces the form of religion. They embrace embrace a form of ritual. They embrace a formula, but there's no power to change the inward sinful circumstances of their lives. The make-believer isn't really saved. Several years ago, George Magazine asked 800 Americans nationwide what they believed. 86% said they believed in God or a supreme being. 48% attended some religious service once a week. 86% believed in heaven. 77% believed in hell. 30% believed in reincarnation. Surprisingly, 60% believed the world was created in six days. 38% believed in evolution. Concerning one of the hot topics, 70% believed, believed, believed that life began at conception, yet the number of pro-lifers in the survey was only 49%. 67% believed that each religion is legitimate and valid, just like some of you. Depending on which poll you read, Up to 50% of the people claim to be born-again Christians. The evidence seems overwhelming that a huge number of people who think they're Christians, who go to Christian churches, who pray and read their Bible are in fact not Christians at all. And they're headed down the broad road that leads to destruction. That shouldn't be the simple, shocking thing that we talk about this morning. There's another question that we have to ask. And if we refuse to ask, we're kidding ourselves. And that is, how can so many people be wrong about their own spiritual condition? How can so many people be wrong about their own spiritual condition? It should cause each and every one of us to pause, to consider, to reflect. Jesus says that the make-believer's false profession is linked to their false performance. Look what it says in verse 22. Many will say to me in that day... Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Can the make-believer preach with success, promote spiritual warfare, produce spectacular displays of power, and then be totally disconnected from the life of Jesus? from the love of Jesus, from a relationship with Jesus. The make-believer appeals to his or her works as the basis of entrance into the kingdom. Listen to what they're saying. Have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonders? This becomes so very, very important because the make-believer has confidence in religion. The make-believer has confidence in church in order to be made acceptable or comfortable. The make-believer says, well, well, wait a minute, I grew up in the church. 
The make-believer says, I'm not going to change my religion, even if it means rejecting Christ. The make-believer says, I'm a good person. The make-believer says, I've done great things. The make-believer appeals to his or her works as the basis of entrance. The make-believer has confidence in something other than Christ. The make-believer prophesies. The make-believer casts out demon. The make-believer can serve in the name of the Lord. And by the way, is it wrong to prophesy? I'm not saying that it is wrong. Is it wrong to cast out demons? I'm not saying that that's wrong. Am I saying it's wrong to serve in the name of the Lord? What I'm saying is that you can prophesy, cast out demons, and serve and be utterly disconnected from Christ. Note what Jesus says. Many will say to me in that day. Ask yourself the question. It's okay to ask. What day? In that day. Jesus says in that day. What day? What day do you think he's talking about? If you came up with the idea or the answer, judgment day, you would be correct. But I want you to think of the outrageousness of what Jesus has just said. Can you imagine if a former famous president said, you know, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we vote for you? Didn't we contribute to your party? Didn't we do great things? And I'll say to you, depart from me. You think of, yeah, we laugh just because of the outrageousness of the idea of a mere human being making the statement, guess what? Entrance into heaven and having a right relationship with God is going to be dependent upon me. It's outrageous. It's, it's crazy talk. Unless it's true. Un- unless it's true. Is there even the remote possibility that when Jesus says what he says, that he says so for good reason? The genuine believer... understands that Jesus is the basis for having a right relationship with God. Again, think about what Jesus is implying. He is there. He's the Lord on judgment day. Your eternal destiny is in his hands. Think about what Jesus says concerning those who are accepted and then think about what he's saying concerning those who are rejected. They appeal to what they have done for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for them. And that should give you an insight into what to say. Remember, here's my job. My job is to prepare you for that day. My job, let me just be blunt. Each and every one of you will face Jesus one day. Each and every one of you are going to be asked the question, on what basis should you get to go to heaven? And if any of you say, because I went to Calvary Chapel, you're going to be in so much trouble. (laughs) You need to be able to say, according to the Bible... I don't have anything to appeal to other than what Jesus has done for me. Jesus loved me and Jesus died for me and Jesus rose from the dead for me. My acceptance or rejection is going to be fully and finally characterized by friendship, relationship, fellowship with Jesus. The make-believer appeals to their own ability. The believer will appeal to Christ's ability. The make-believer will appeal to their own goodness. 
The real believer will appeal to Christ's goodness. The make believer will appeal to their own ability and their own goodness. And note the we. Have we not prophesied in your name? Beware of people who exalt their own ministry. They love to name their ministry after themselves. They love to give someone the glory other than Jesus. The make believer appeals to their impressive works or their seeming good works. The make believer says, great preaching, effective healing, many miracles. Great preaching, effective healing, many miracles. Doesn't that count for something? And Jesus doesn't dispute their claims. That's what's remarkable to me. It isn't just simply that they say it. I kind of saw that coming. What I didn't see coming is how could they possibly do those things disconnected from Christ? Can the unbeliever, can the make-believer generate supernatural signs, healing and miracles? It would appear so. Make-believers with power ministries. Jesus remains unimpressed with power ministries, but he continues to count on a heart that's characterized by humility, a deep recognition of personal sin, a willingness to turn from sin and to cry out to God for help. That seems to be what impresses Jesus. So then how do we account for the make-believer performing powerful signs Amazing wonders. I think we have to be prepared to acknowledge that supernatural sources exist. Jesus himself, when he says, you cast out demons in my, my name, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, that's a religious superstition of, of you people of the first century. You know, having been, been an enlightened master coming from heaven, I, I just need you to know that there's no such thing as demons, but Jesus doesn't say that. This may come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but Jesus actually believes that there are supernatural beings, that there are supernatural beings called angels and demons. So what are the explanations? Well, there's three possible answers that I want to propose to you. Number one, Judas performed certain supernatural signs and wonders by the genuine power of God Can God use the unbeliever or the make-believer to accomplish genuine God-ordained healings and signs and wonders? If we look just very briefly in the Old Testament, God uses Balaam, wicked and compromised in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 5, King Saul, not before, but after his disobedience, after his relentless pursuit of David, after that, The spirit of God comes upon him and he prophesies according to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 10. Even Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, unbelieving, wickedly prophesies either unknowingly or unwittingly. He says, isn't it better that one man die than the whole nation perish? And according to the New Testament writer, he said that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or number two, perhaps some signs were done by the power of Satan. Jesus predicted, quote, false Christs, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. His words, not mine. Matthew 24, verse 24. I have reports of Indian gurus making sacred ash appear. I have a friend, Tal Brook, who reported seeing Sai Baba turn water into gasoline and and make a vehicle drive. In the Old Testament, we see magicians and sorcerers in Pharaoh's court duplicate certain miracles, but not others in Exodus chapter 7 and 8. 
The unbelieving sons of Sceva were said to cast out demons in Acts chapter 19, verse 13 and 14. Paul spoke of false signs in the last days, lying wonders of Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Simon Magus, the so-called sorcerer, was said to have believed, been baptized, performed miracles in Acts chapter 8, verse 11. Does it shock you or surprise you? That there are people who allegedly perform miracles, exercise demons, claim healing, but are in fact make believers. Or there's a third possibility the false professors might just be lying. Even though Jesus says, quote, many will say to me in that day, their claims are false. Christians should never fake or exaggerate the supernatural workings of God. They may have thought that they were doing something supernatural, making a person's leg grow longer or filling their teeth with gold. Is it possible that genuine believers can make false claims? I think that the answer is yes. Do real healings take place? I think that the answer is yes. I think that a real God can, in fact, supernaturally heal people. In the book of Acts, you'll remember that Peter and John were approaching uh, the temple and they come to the gate beautiful. And remember, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And in fact, he does exactly that. Does a real God have real power? Yes. Does a lying Satan have real power? I think that the answer is yes. Can human beings fake and falsify things? Every human being in the building should be able to say, yes. And so, Look finally what it says, the make-believer's future punishment in verse 23. And again, this is shocking. It's it's startling. It, It should be upsetting. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. I've seen some fairly scary things in my life. I've heard some fairly troubling things in my life. But this particular passage of scripture might be the most frightening and troubling in the whole New Testament. Read it for yourself. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are those who should be able to say, well, what do you mean, Jesus? I never knew you. You're God. You're the second person of the Trinity. You know everything about everything. You know everyone and everything. How could you not know me? How could you not be there when I was born and walk with me throughout my life and live with me and talk with me? Who then was I talking to? The Lord makes it clear that it's possible to have a false profession and not have a true possession. This is Jesus' words. The statement is revolutionary. He not only claims to fulfill the law, but he claims to be the person who's going to render the judgment on the last day, and that he alone decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And the Lord Jesus says, I never knew you. Not in the omniscient sense of the word, but rather in the intimacy form of the word. In the relationship, in the fellowship of the word. People might even say, well, what does the original language say? I'll tell you what it says. And then I will declare to them in the original language when it says, I never knew you. In the original language, it says, I never, no, never at any time knew you. 
There was never a moment that I knew you. The implication being, if he ever knew you, he forever knows you. The make-believer was fooled. The make-believer managed to live their life fooling themselves. They may have even managed to fool you. They may have managed to fool me. But in the end, Jesus says, you won't be able to fool me. So how is that possible? How is it possible? How is it possible to pretend to be a successful Christian and in the end fail? The statement, I never knew you, can't mean an understanding of the reality of who you are. This is intimacy. This is friendship. This is fellowship. This is relationship. And again, I want you to pause for just a moment because if you miss this point, again, it's, it's, it's an important point. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus believes that there is such thing as a saving relationship. This isn't just, well, Gino, you're one of those born-again types, and that's what you believe. Does it shock you or surprise you that Jesus is one of those born-again types who basically points out that there is such thing as a saving relationship and that the make-believer doesn't have this saving relationship with the Lord Jesus? It isn't about having a saving relationship with Calvary Chapel or with the Methodist Church or the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church or whatever church you want to pick out. The make-believer shares some of the characteristics of the true believer. They look alike. They talk alike. But they act very differently. They act very differently. Emil Brunner says, quote, yet Jesus disowns them. They own Jesus and Jesus disowns them. They honor him. They call him Lord, Lord. And he, dis he dishonors them. They work for him and he separates from them. Is it possible to work for Jesus and yet not work under Jesus, unquote? Many people call themselves Christians, but they don't know Jesus. They don't love him. They're in love perhaps with power, the power that comes from understanding who Jesus is. They're intoxicated with power, but indifferent to the commands of Jesus. Is it possible to be powerful for Jesus and yet refuse to be humbled by Jesus? Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How much clearer could it be? They hate God's laws. I want you to pause for just a moment. Are you saying that they don't teach Jesus' commandments? I'm saying exactly the opposite. That they teach God's commandments, but refuse to submit to them themselves. Imagine a person says, I think sexual immorality is wrong. then why do you live a sexually immoral life? I think stealing is wrong. Then why do you steal? I think lying is wrong. Then why do you lie? You see, Christianity has come to a place in its existence where we are tempted more than ever to call good evil. And evil, good. Just this week, a very famous evangelical talked about um, recognizing same-sex marriage. And saying, we should invite them into the church. If he would have said it differently, I would have actually agreed with him. If he would have said, invite sinners into the church, I would have said, yes, sinners are welcome. Welcome all sinners. But he didn't say that. 
He said, welcome them and pretend that their sin isn't sin. And I'm here to tell you that as your pastor, I will never, ever, ever, no, never, no, ever, ever, no, never invite the sinner to remain in his or her sin, to continue in their sin, to remain in their sin. It would be wicked and foolish. And so we invite sinners not to remain in their sin, but to turn from their sin. Some may think it's a little legalistic to expect people to refrain from practicing lawlessness. But the words of Jesus are sobering. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Anomia is, is, is the word. Anomia means a is, is the Greek prefix, which means no. Nomos is law. It means lawlessness, but it, 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 it could mean something way more. It also includes the idea of wickedness. It's the opposite of God's law. It's the substitution of the human will over the divine will. It's the belief that I can trust myself or the world more than I need to trust God. So why does Jesus say this? What does he mean by depart? Where will they go? What will they do? When he uses the word depart, it's again an interesting word in the original language. Apo, koreo. It means to depart from or to be cut off. It means to leave. It means to go away. But it also implies something else. It isn't just a short distance. The word implies an infinite distance between you and him. It doesn't just simply mean you're going to go somewhere where I don't have to see you or I don't have to deal with you. Apparently, it means somewhere far away. It's an enormous gulf between the professor, the make-believer, and the one who judges. And later in Matthew 8, Jesus will say, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-two thirteen. And they shall cut him in half and appoint with him a portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-four fifty-one. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do, are you left with the impression, well, it's not all that bad. <laughs> He's just trying to scare us. And I got to tell you something. There's two equal and opposite dilemmas that the modern human being faces. And that is to be afraid of everything and to be afraid of nothing. You know, you who are parents, do you teach your children a healthy respect for something that can hurt them? Doesn't it make sense to you that God would do exactly the same? The make-believer is willing to substitute a charismatic ministry, prophecy club, deliverance ministry, signs and wonders for simple obedience to Christ's commands. And no amount of the spectacular, no amount of miracle crusades will substitute for obedience. Obedience may not get you on television, and obedience certainly won't get you on the radio. Obedience won't get you a book deal. Obedience doesn't seem to be glamorous. Prophecy is glamorous. Exorcism is glamorous. Miracles are glamorous. But they'll never substitute for poverty of spirit, personal humility, biblical integrity, personal purity, mourning over sin, and complete trust of Jesus. So which is it? Are you a believer? 
unbeliever, make believer. The make believer loves power, sees angels, fights demons, hates sickness and disease. The make believer has no interest whatsoever in confessing sin, turning from sin, repenting of sin, turning to Jesus, and allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to change you forever. You know, there's a common a comment engraved in stone in front of a great cathedral in Germany. It reads, quote, Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me the way and you walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, few things are more shocking, intimidating, than to wind up on judgment day and look full as the song says into your wonderful face only to have you say I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness Lord we totally understand that we will continue to practice rebellion practice lawlessness if we've never come into a right relationship with you, if we've never in humility submitted to you, if we've never turned in repentance from our sin and acknowledged that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would cause the scales to fall from the make-believer's eyes and the hard-hearted rebellion to drop from their heart. And that they would ask this very simple question. Am I willing to turn from my sin? Repent of my sin? And to turn to my Savior? Now and forever. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would just pray that very simple prayer. Lord, you know my heart. You know the condition of my heart. Lord, I don't want to live my life appealing to my own goodness or my own good works. I want to honestly and unequivocally acknowledge that apart from Jesus, apart from his love, apart from his grace, there's no hope for me. And I receive him now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.